We're going to be in Mark chapter 8 today, starting with verse 27. And I want to start by telling you a parable today. A local history buff was researching the post-Civil War era in Branch County and came across this engrossing story. Back in the 1870s, there was a speculation that Colonel Albert Benjamin Gladwin died because his nephew, Nathan Gladwin, recently arrived from Connecticut, had poisoned him. So Nathan inherited everything, but never found the gold coins that his uncle had reputedly hidden somewhere on the property. So our history buff, uh, fascinated by this, starts researching Colonel Gladwin and becomes convinced that he got his hands on a shipment of gold in 1869 while he was in command of security at Fort Knox. And he reads how Nathan died, his nephew died a pauper, but only after he had dug up every square inch of ground in the lot without finding the gold. So our history buff then comes across over the months a newspaper clipping from 1873 that reported the eccentric Colonel Gladwin invited the luminaries of Branch County to his home to celebrate the completion of updates to the kitchen and living room. But the house was only three years old, so why was he updating the kitchen and the living room? And our history buff thinks he knows where the gold is hidden. It's in the wall between the kitchen and the living room. And that treasure by now would be worth tens of millions of dollars. When later he hears that the Gladwin house is to be sold at auction, he immediately puts his house on the market to raise funds to purchase it. And because it's like many of the old houses around here, Italianate architecture, and has fabulously detailed woodwork, he knows it's going to go at a hefty price. People come from around the country for the auction, but he determinedly outbids every other buyer, though it costs him everything he has and everything he can borrow. The house is now his. So what do you think our history buff will do next? Will he settle down, enjoy living in this beautiful, albeit drafty old house? Or will he tear out the walls and find that $15 million or $20 million treasure? All right, just keep that in mind. Let's look at our text. And by the way, um, by the way, the translation I'm giving you today is not one that's readily accessible. So I'm going to put it on the screen. You can compare with your Bibles, but you won't find the same translation in your Bibles. Verse 27, And Jesus and his disciples went out to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and along the way he asked his disciples, Who are the people saying I am? They said to him, they're saying John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, still others, that you're one of the prophets. Those were the categories that people had at their disposal at that time. Now, more recently, theologians have found different categories. Jesus was, was a freedom fighter, a liberator like Moses. or So these are uh, renowned theologians. Or... Jesus was a traveling philosophy teacher, a philosopher teacher like the cynic philosopher Diogenes. Or he was a holy man, this fiery prophet cut from the cloth of someone like Elijah, who, who wants to turn people back to God. Well, to that I would say, yes, Jesus is a liberator, like Moses. He is a teacher, like Diogenes. Diogenes. 
he is a prophet like Elijah, but say rather they're like him in certain ways, but he transcends them. He overflows all the categories that are available to us. As Halford Luckett said, Jesus was too new and unique, too big and oddly shaped to fit the categories people had available to them. If there are similarities to Moses and Elijah and Diogenes, it's because they were made in his image. He fills the available categories and overflows them because Jesus is not like anyone else. He is, as Peter is about to confess, the Son of God. Now, here's the rub. He not only made liberators and wise men and prophets, he made you. And that means he has a claim on your life. He's your maker. And that's not all. He also bought you back when you were serving the wrong side. He ransomed you, his life for yours. He has a double claim on your life. Now look at verse 28. And he asked them, but you, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Now, St. Matthew reports Peter's answer in greater detail. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And he goes on to tell us Jesus' response. Peter, you're blessed because this isn't something you figured out on your own. This is something that God has revealed to you. Now, Mark doesn't tell us that. But Mark does tell us something that Matthew leaves out. He tells us that after Peter said this, Jesus rebuked. That's the word in the original language. It's a strong one. He rebuked his disciples. Literally, he rebuked them, not just Peter, but the entire group, that they should tell no one about him. It's the same kind of language you find in other places in the Gospels when Jesus rebukes demons who through their hosts are saying, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, when he rebukes them and tells them to be silent. Here he does the same thing to his disciples. But if he's the Son of God and Peter was blessed to have this truth revealed, why not bless other people with the same truth? Why rebuke the disciples over telling people? I mean, didn't Jesus want people to believe that he was the Son of God and the Messiah? Yes, and no. He did want people to believe he was the Son of God, the Messiah, but not until they understood who the Son of God, the Messiah, was. They thought Messiah, they thought Messiah was a military hero who would lead Israel in a successful revolt against the Roman occupational forces and set up a kingdom for God based on the law of Moses in Israel. In their mind, that, that is who Messiah is. <clears throat> that is strikingly similar to the Islamic State's hope for a caliphate that will drive out Basar al-Assad and set up a kingdom for God based on Sharia law in Syria. It's the same thinking 2,000 years later. Having people think of Jesus in those terms, and and they were the only terms many people understood, would hurt, not help. 
Jesus refused to be the Messiah of someone else's making. So verse 30, and he rebuked them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that it's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer much and to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days to rise again. God's Messiah would be different from the Messiah the general population was expecting. In fact, he'd be different from the Messiah anyone was expecting. He wouldn't drive out the Romans. He would drive out sin. He would not rule with an iron rod, not yet anyway. He would rule people with his comforting rod and staff. He would not crush the nations. He would win hearts. And he would do it in a way no one expected. Verse 31, he would suffer much and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days would rise again. Mark goes on to say that he spoke about this plainly, or literally with openness. Now, verse 32. After taking him aside, Peter began to rebuke him. Kevin and I were talking about this this week, and Kevin said something like, uh, I bet he's pretty embarrassed by that now. <laughs> you know? I, I don't think so. I think he and Jesus have a good laugh over it. You remember the time when I took you aside and started to rebuke you? Do you realize what's happening here? Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. Peter, the leader of the 12 apostles, the confidant of Jesus, was offended by the cross. St. Paul would later write that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And St. Peter would quote Psalm 118, that people stumble over this scandal, this rock of offense, this stumbling block. Stumbling block to Jews? Guess who the first Jew was who stumbled over it? None other than St. Peter. Now look at what happens next, verse 33. Jesus turning and seeing his disciples rebuked Peter and said, go away behind me, Satan, because you are not minding the things of God, but the things of men. Now we see why Jesus rebuked the disciples to tell no one about him. The disciples weren't ready to tell people about him. They were confused themselves. God had touched Peter's spiritual eyes so that he could see Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. But after that touch, Peter's vision was still cloudy, still distorted. He was like the man whose story Mark includes immediately prior to this one. And the proximity of those two stories is not coincidental. The man was blind. Jesus touched him and gave one of the most curious stories in the Gospels. And it always struck me as so strange that the Gospels tell us this story until I realized it's linked with this story about Peter. The man was blind. Jesus touched him, gave him sight. By the way, Jesus took him aside. And it's similar to what language that's used of Peter taking Jesus aside. Jesus touched him, and he could see, but his vision was still distorted. After one touch, he could see people, this is verse 24, that looked like trees walking around. He needed another touch before he could see clearly, and so did Peter. But maybe not a touch. Peter more needed a smack on the side of the head. And in a sense, that's what he got because verse 33, Jesus rebuked Peter. By the way, third time the word rebuked is used in just a couple sentences. He rebuked Peter. Peter had received a touch 
just like the blind man of the preceding verses, which gave him enough vision to see that Jesus was the Messiah. But to Peter, he looked like a ferocious warrior walking around. If he was ever going to see clearly, he needed another touch. People, so do we. Many of us right now are in need of another work of grace, another touch of God on our lives, even if it's a rebuke. A rebuke given by God is a gift to be treasured, is a blessing. Peter got that blessing, verse 33, when Jesus rebuked him for literally minding the things of men, not the things of God. See, here's what happens when, when we start minding the things of men. That is, when we give our full attention to what other people who don't belong to Christ build their lives around. We inevitably put ourselves in front of Jesus, not behind him, where we belong. We do exactly what Peter did. We get in front of Jesus and start telling him his business. And remarkably, his business happens to be taking care of our business. And our business is doing what everybody else is busy doing. We claim to be Christ followers, but sometimes we look more like Christ leaders. And when that happens, Jesus rebukes us and tells us to get behind him and stop trying to lead. Now look at verse 34. After calling the crowd along with the disciples to come to him, he said to them, If anyone wishes to follow after me, let him deny himself and lift his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his soul will ruin it. But whoever ruins his soul on my behalf and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to suffer the loss of his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So the essential condition of following Jesus, the sine qua non, if you will, is that you must deny yourself. In our society, we're taught to respect ourselves, love ourselves, care for ourselves. But deny ourselves? That is cultural heresy. Who would dare tell a person in our society to deny themselves? I'll tell you who. The Christ, the Son of the living God. We think we need success, good health, a newer car, respect from others, our kids doing well for themselves, but the one who made us knows that none of that will cut it for us. We need a radical solution, something nobody else is doing. We need to deny ourselves. David Lodge wrote a novel called Therapy back in the 19th 90s. And in the story, the protagonist is told by a therapist to make a list of all the good things in his life 
in one column and all the bad things in another. So in the first column, the good column, he wrote professionally successful, well-off, good health, stable marriage, kids successfully launched in adult life, nice house, great car, as many holidays as I want. In the back column, he wrote only one thing, feel unhappy most of the time. How could he feel unhappy most of the time when he has everything everyone wants out of life? The surprising answer is everyone wants the wrong things. Let that sink in for a moment. God wants something better for us. If we're going to have the joy and peace and power that God wants to bestow on us, that's Romans chapter 15, we need to be renovated, not just maintained, transformed, not just preserved, or pickled might be a more accurate expression. God's plan is not just reformation, it's recreation. And Jesus understood this. Here's what he understood. Because of sin, and not just ours, but our races, beginning with Father Adam and and Mother Eve, humans were born damaged. You were born damaged. So was I. We begin life with a selfish self. One that is incapable of fulfillment. A self that believes and acts as if it has final authority over all matters concerning itself. That selfish self doesn't need help. It needs to be replaced. And our part in this is to deny ourselves. Denying yourself, now people get this really wrong, so listen carefully, does not mean rejecting or despising yourself. It does not mean punishing yourself by withholding pleasures or inflicting pain. Denying yourself doesn't mean you'll never eat ice cream again or pursue your favorite hobby or buy attractive clothing. Then what does it mean? What exactly are we denying when we deny ourselves? We are denying that my self has final authority over my life. We're denying that my self has the right to countermand Jesus' orders. Ever. An ice cream cone or a round of golf is fine, unless it keeps you from serving Jesus and doing what he wants. You deny to yourself the right to ever say no to God again. The final of the authority of the self is denied. And it's more than denied, it's done in. The dictator's deposed and led off to the electric chair. Or the cross, which is the picture Jesus uses in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The only reason a person took up his cross in that day was that he was on his way to die. And so Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And herein lies the paradox. 
when we say no to the self and refuse to give it the final authority over our lives, when we follow the Christ who bids us come and die, we begin to live. That's what Malcolm Muggeridge and a myriad of other Christians have discovered. I can say, Malcolm Muggeridge once claimed, that I never knew what joy was until I gave up pursuing happiness or cared to live until I chose to die. For these two discoveries, I am beholden to Jesus. Jesus doesn't tell us to deny ourselves because he wants to ruin our lives, but because he wants to save us from ruin, which will surely come if we insist on having the final authority over our lives. According to C.S. Lewis, Christ says, I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I haven't come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think are innocent as well as the ones you think are wicked. The whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. God doesn't want to stifle or repress you. He wants to free you to become your own glorious self. But that will never happen as long as there is a petty dictator on the throne dominated by fear and desire rather than love. He or she must be deposed. There must be an uprising. And guess what? You are the one to lead it. Don't think the demand to take up your cross is optional for Jesus' followers. Taking up your cross is how you follow. It's following what he did, going where he went, to complete and utter submission to God. It's not something you do for, for a time or from time to time. When illness strikes, when persecution comes, it's something you do daily. It is the overall condition of your life. Now, does that sound hard to you? It is and will continue to be if you remain just like you are. If you insist on doing life the way everyone else does, for the whole goal is securing yourself and promoting yourself, it'll be more than hard. It'll be unbearable. The life of a Jesus follower is not like the life of everybody else. It's radically different and radically better. When we leave the ruined self to Jesus, when we abdicate the throne and stop entertaining the petty disputes of our competing desires, Jesus will give us a new self. It'll not be hurtful or angry or fearful, but will live increasingly, and increasingly because it will be growing all the time. It will live in wonder, love, and praise. Now, here's the reason to deny yourself, something our culture thinks is insane, because your soul is enormously valuable. It's greatness, the greatness of your soul, you, is inestimable. What you can be in this life and in the age to come, 
is nothing short of glorious. A joy, a power, a depth of peace, a love for God and for others that you cannot now conceive of is your destiny. If weighed in the balance, the whole world with all its wealth and the pleasures and comforts it affords can't compare to the joy and glory of a saved soul. This is the treasure. This is the gold in the walls. But the house is going to have to come down to get to it. How do you get to it? How do you get to be the soul that would not trade being itself for all the wealth of the world? There's one path and only one through following Jesus in the way Jesus requires. He is the way. Let me give you a couple things that will help. Start by intentionally and determinedly confessing Jesus, Lord. The flip side of that is you intentionally and determinedly reject yourself as Lord. You vow that you will not overrule or countermand Jesus' orders ever again. If you have not done that, please do it today. If you have done that, please reaffirm your vow. We're going to have time during the communion for you to pray, and I suggest you use it for that. But you'll fail at it. You'll fail at following Jesus' orders if you don't know them. Jesus said, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. How can you obey his commands if you don't have them? And how can you have them if you've never read them? Read the Bible. If you're serious about Jesus, read the Bible. And a great place to get started is right here in the book of Mark. Read the Gospel of Mark. And as you see things that Jesus has to do, do them. When temptation comes, and it will, in the form of disregarding something Jesus said or is saying to you by his spirit right now so that you can yield to the tyrant of desire, when it comes, that's where the battle rages and that's where the tyrant is deposed. You, and, and I know this is going to happen. It happens with all of us. You've made this vow. You will never countermand Jesus' orders, but sometimes you'll still disobey them. You'll disobey them out of fear. You'll disobey them out of habit. We have something called the flesh that is habitualized to doing things in a certain way. But never again will you imagine that you have the authority to say no to Jesus. You may disobey him, but he's the boss and you know it. And because of that, when Jesus says something to you, you do it. When he says, forgive that person, don't tell yourself you can't. Don't tell yourself that he doesn't deserve it. Don't tell yourself anything. Just do it. And if you don't know how, just try it. Try to do it. That'll be enough to start.
The kingdom of God and the God of the kingdom will come alongside you and help. Just do it. One last thing. Train before you go into battle. We don't take 18-year-old kids off the street and stick them in, in the heat of the fighting in Afghanistan. We first send them through boot camp. We train them to prepare for what's coming. You do this by practicing denying yourself. You do this by the spiritual disciplines. Prayer. Bible reading. Sacrificial giving. We don't ask you to give so we can keep the lights on. And especially by the disciplines of silence, solitude, and fasting. Jesus did it. Paul did it. The disciples did it. Christians through the ages have done it. You do it. Don't go into battle unprepared. All right. Let's pray. Pray whatever the Lord put on your heart right now to him. Thank you, O oh God, for hearing our prayers. Please hear this prayer as well. As we come to your table, Lord, reveal to us that you're here. That you are present with us in your power and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.